Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, March the 2nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We are now almost a week into the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the news coming out of Kiev and Kharkiv and Mariupol and other parts of that country about the progress of the war is often unclear, but also often deeply worrying and upsetting. Today, we wanted to look at how the Putin regime's actions seemed in a few short days to have transformed longstanding and seemingly entrenched political attitudes across Europe towards relationships with Russia, with profound implications for the EU's strategy on energy, on diplomacy and on defence. To discuss all of this, I'm joined by our Europe correspondent, Naomi O'Leary. Hi, Naomi. Hi, and also by our Berlin correspondent, Derek Scali. Hi, Derek. Hello, Hugh. Uh, Naomi, uh, I'll go to you first. Um, I think it's fair to say that the European Union underwent some kind of a profound transformation over a really short period of time between the early hours of Friday and, and Sunday. Um, what happened? The key thing is that on the early hours of Friday, right, that was when the national leaders, the 27, met in Brussels. And they were addressed over a video link by the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky. And he told them, I don't know if you'll see me again alive. The Russian forces were aiming to kill him and his family, um, he said subsequently. What this address did was it suddenly made all the preparations that the 27 had made up until this moment seem totally inadequate. Sanctions had actually been started to be prepared like weeks, a long time ago, with a sort of coordination going on back and forth between the commission, between national capitals to figure out what was acceptable, uh, what they could swallow. And the steps taken at those points uh, to protect national interests, to protect economies, to carve out certain industries, those were suddenly rapidly overtaken by events, the invasion, the brutality, the massive swing in public opinion towards doing more to help Ukraine and more to punish Russia, uh, suddenly made those decisions, in which in normal times would be perfectly rational, um, seem like really tawdry. <laughs> and um, the national leaders started to get enormous flack for not going far enough. Um, people were disgusted that, you know, they when you're looking at people's lives versus stuff like the diamond industry of Antwerp or luxury goods, you know, it just, like, it it changed everything. And also, I think the national leaders felt it as well. They reckoned with, um, in a way, the limits of the approach they had been able, they had been willing to take so far. And they accepted the willingness to pay a price. And that's what they did. They came out and started saying, we're willing to pay a price. And I think that people are willing to pay a price because they started to see this in terms of actually defending the Western order, defending democracy. Um, so then over the next two days, um, ambassadors met day and night trying to figure out the next steps. And what we just saw was a domino effect of just one taboo after another being thrown out the window. Um, suddenly, uh, you know, enormous sanctions came out, making it difficult for the Russian central bank to access its reserves overseas, uh, kicking Russian banks off the SWIFT international payment system, 
sanctions that went way further than anything ever has before. And also this huge U-turn on defence, which happened in Germany, also happened for the EU as a whole, with on Sunday the announcement of 450 million euros in a common EU fund uh, to purchase weapons uh, for the Ukrainian army. And this was uh, something completely unprecedented and unthinkable even days before. Um, And we saw that reflected in an extraordinary session of the European Parliament on Tuesday, in which uh, we heard impassioned speeches. Zelensky addressed the Parliament again from video link from the front line. Freedom Square, can you imagine this morning two cruise missiles hit this Freedom Square, dozens of killed ones. This is the price of freedom. We are fighting just for our land and for our freedom. Ursula von der Leyen told the chamber, you know, we've made more progress on the issue of security and defence. More has changed on security and defence in the last six days than it has in the last 20 years. And the foreign affairs chief, Josep Borrell, said, um, I think this is the moment in which we're seeing the geopolitical union being born. So the EU actually finding its strength in terms of hard power as well as soft power. Uh, there was a really electric and historic feeling to the occasion. And suddenly people found political bravery, you know, suddenly things that everybody kind of knew were wrong, but were accepted, like hidden money, dirty money, um, all manner of things. So, you know, the way that the West sort of launders the money of uh, kleptocrats and oligarchs all over the world was suddenly being openly attacked. And suddenly there was this acceptance of, you know, making hard choices and what it's all about. It's about the chance to have rule of law, to have democracy, to live in a free society and what the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people were fighting for. It all suddenly made it really clear. And uh, there was this sense of a reawakening of the old dream of what Europe was supposed to be. I, I want to go to Derek on the on the German perspective, which is obviously absolutely crucial and, and central to all this. But can I just follow up with, with you, Naomi? Like the people who you're talking to in, uh, in Brussels, those minds that changed. Um, I mean, I can understand pressure from from public opinion in in countries across Europe. I can understand horror about what people were seeing on their television screens and their and their social media feeds. But um, it's 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 fascinating to look at newspapers and websites from only a week ago and the cynicism and the scepticism which was being expressed in about the willingness of uh, European institutions to take anything like the kind of measures that we now know are in place. At an individual level, is there some kind of a lifting of a of a veil of, of of avoidance of something? Did it just sort of happen overnight? I think people grew up. Um, it became wartime decision making rather than peacetime, and people changed. I mean, speaking to senior ministers and national leaders, you can you can hear the emotion, um, and. Everyone has just gone over to the side, basically, of the Eastern Europeans. Before the Eastern Europeans, have, you know, they've been saying this all along. They've been saying this stuff for years, um, that Putin has ambitions like this, that he's not actually a rational actor, that he will do things that are violent, dangerous, and that we need to prepare. And they were called paranoid. They're isolated in that. And suddenly everybody's just kind of saying, you know, you, we're sorry and you were wrong. And um, adopting the Eastern European viewpoint and expressing their solidarity, essentially. 
Um, so we had, you know, prime ministers coming out and saying, you know, we we thought that Putin wanted peace. We thought if we could offer him economic growth and trade ties, then he wouldn't have a problem anymore and Russia would develop into a sort of democracy. And this was wrong. We were wrong. And um, now we have to change our approach. This changes everything. Um, and yeah, it's common to hear really senior leaders either choking up or, you know, just sounding extremely grave. And um, it, it's you feel like history is happening when you hear them talking. It's clear that there were there was a transformation that happened in the room. And I think it has a lot to do with the really, I mean, the, the amazing ability of President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people to make viral content that communicates directly to people, uh, national leaders and the public as well, so that it's like almost like they're influencers in the war and there's like a personal relationship with them. And even if the language isn't the same, the images can sometimes even transcend language. And when he spoke directly to the leaders, you could hear how much they felt ashamed at the limits of what the, what they had been willing to do. And I think it changed them. So, Derek, I mean, this transformation, which Naomi describes, was particularly vividly illustrated at a session of the Bundestag in Berlin on Sunday. Can you tell us what happened there? Yes, everything happened. Everything changed, really. I think uh, Germany's, let's say, post-Cold War view of the world and it's it's what it felt the limits of its um its ability to act it all just fell away um like before sunday what we had was let's say until the war in ukraine we had let's say uh, we had uh, four terms of angela merkel who engaged with vladimir putin at a very high level, very high stakes, whether it was uh, the um, conflict in Georgia or uh, the annexation of Crimea. She spent 15 hours in a room with him trying to prevent war uh, back in 2014. And she um, she had no illusions about Vladimir Putin. But on the other hand, you know, she had no illusions about all the money that German companies could make there. And as a German chancellor, she felt that was her obligation. And now that all has just fallen away. So we have both the centre left and the centre right in, in Germany saying that they were, they were either had or they were happy to be had about what Russia was about in Europe, what Russia was capable of doing. And so we've got two things on the one hand, uh, fury with themselves for being lied to, uh, as they say it. And, uh, and then saying, well, what can we do now? And on Sunday, we saw what we could do now where everything, the last 30 years of German Russian policy just basically were binned. Uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said we have uh, a, a far greater responsibility to Europe than any sort of notions of cooperating with Russia. And he said we will do the unthinkable. We will um, start giving uh, defensive weapons to Ukraine, a, a taboo, a massive taboo in post-war Germany, the idea of German-made weapons being used against former victims of Nazi violence. So they refused to do that before. They're doing it now. Um, he announced that they were going to uh, create a 100 billion uh, fund for defence. Germany has always been very wary of spending any money on defence. Many people in Germany have a pacifist tradition for obvious reasons. So the idea of being in NATO is really hard for them to stomach. But the idea of them actually spending what NATO expects on defence, 2% of its uh, gross domestic product, that's never been possible. You remember Donald Trump uh, railing against German freeloading. So on Sunday, um, without really telling his coalition partners, uh, Chancellor Schultz said, well, we're doing this. We're going to spend 100 
$100 billion at once in a special fund, and we will increase spending to the NATO uh, minimum. And uh, this basically because he said the Russian leader has demolished the European security order that's prevailed for almost half a century. It was, it was, it was really a historic speech as it was being made. We have experienced a break in everything we have known until now. And that means that the world before this attack is not the same as the world before it. Essentially, it's about the question of whether might can break laws, whether we can allow Putin to turn back the clock to the time of imperial powers of the 19th century, or whether we can draw a line in the sand and contain this. From now on, year for year, more than 2% of our GDP will be invested in defence. And so this move on defence, which is very profound, I foolishly thought that the German um, reluctance to give weapons to, to other countries was had some kind of legal basis and would have required some change of the law, but clearly it wasn't. It was, it was policy-based. I mean, the Germans have been running down their army since the end of the Cold War, haven't they? There was an extraordinary um, post by, I think, the head of the German Defence Forces on LinkedIn talking about the state that the, that the German army was in. Um, so this is a really dramatic reversal. It is. Um, and it's the, the question is just, though, how dramatic it is, because uh, Germany spends about 50 billion a year on defence. Uh, so, hundred, but it's been running down its army basically for the last 20 years. So can you really undo 20 years of underinvestment with two extra years of money? Uh, that's the big question. And, uh, there's also lots of doubt about whether or not the problem, a bit like the Irish Health Service, is the problem, you know, we're not throwing enough money at it or you can throw as much money as you want at it, but it will just disappear into the system. And many people are actually arguing that, that it's very easy to announce more money, but when the system itself is flawed and, uh, seriously compromised, will that extra money make the difference? And then there's the third question, you know, it's very, it's all very good for Germany to come and say we're going to spend 100 billion extra, but, you know, join the back of the queue, everyone else wants uh, weapons, everyone else wants um, tanks and planes and so on, and Germany has been struggling just to even acquire tanks and guns for, for years now. So, basically, it, it all sounds good, but it's, it's unfortunately, it's too late for Ukraine, and, um, Hopefully it won't be too late for its NATO partners. But yeah, it is at least a mental shift in Germany. I'll be very interested now to see the logistical shift, whether how quickly that can happen. And also the political shift, he basically blindsided his coalition partners. And they're at the moment, of course, with the war in Ukraine, they're, they're loath to be seen to be the ones, you know, waving some sort of a pacifist flag in the middle of a war zone. But once, uh, and we hope this uh, war with, between Russia and Ukraine passes, um, what will happen in the German? Will their enthusiasm remain? Has this been a, is this a, a long-term shift or is this some quick move in the middle of a crisis? Just one other question about Schultz's speech. As I understand it, it was, it was very well received and it was reacting to, um, I think in a, in a podcast here on Monday, we were talking about this article, which was apparently possibly accidentally prematurely posted on a, on a Russian news website at the weekend, which really set out the, um, the, the case for what Putin is trying to achieve here, which is a return to, and I think Schultz described this, a sort of a version of the 19th century, uh, multipolar spheres of influence, which, which existed then. And this is what Schultz says he is, yeah, Germany needs to, needs to resist. Or, or perhaps more accurately, the EU needs to resist. Is that right? Because that's a, you know, that's that's the biggest change in the biggest geopolitical change since since nineteen eighty nine, isn't it? 
Yes, I think he's he's really aware. There's there's sort of a phantom in the room, particularly in the German debate, and there's a, a huge, huge sympathy for Russia, for the Russian people, for Russian concerns. Um, you know, people are talking almost like a fifth column in the German public debate. So, you know, defense money is one thing and battling his backbenchers is another thing. But I, I call it the, the, the Rebroff effect. There was a singer in Germany called Ivan Rebroff and he would appear in talk shows and sing songs of, you know, Russian tragedies and drink vodka and everyone loved having him on talk shows. He wasn't Russian. He was German. His name was Hans Rolf Rippert. If you look at him on the internet, and this Rebroff guy was basically a German projecting what Rus- what Germans needed to see in the Russian, this sort of romantic 19th century vodka drinking, suffering um, artist. And so much of the German debate has really been about sort of we must do everything to allow the, the Russian spirit to not be unhindered. It's been staggering to watch how many Germans even now will say we must not uh, upset, let's not be beastly to the Russians. And so Olaf Scholz with this, he He's actually battling sort of a, a post-war, I would call it sort of a post-war projection. Germans, though, anyone who's been in an Irish pub and they've seen a German in the corner in an Aaron sweater playing um, Irish traditional music, there's a lot of them in Ireland. And you almost have the same in the other direction towards the east. Germans needing to find in the Russians something that they lost themselves or something that I would almost say Hitler co-opted in them and it became contaminated after the war. So there's this almost emotional battle that Olaf Scholz has to do with all the these notions, I would call them, that Germans have about Russia, that they, you know, you can have those ideas about the Russian people. And one of the great uh, achievements of post-war Germany has been the reconciliation between German people and Russian people. But projecting that all the way up to the top of the Kremlin and considering Putin is part of the Russian people and he has this romantic soul and we must not do anything to upset him. You know, he's trying to break with that quite brutally because I would say that really has been the blinkers that has been preventing Germany seeing the reality uh, that Poland and the Baltics have been warning about for years. It's just a theory, but I really, I've been struggling the last few days to understand why, even until now, so many Germans are almost defending Russia or defending Russia's need to hit out at its neighbours. Naomi, Putin's calculation clearly um, has been that the EU is disunited, unable to act in concert because of the various differing interests of of the of the many member states, and that has been true in the past. I think it's 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 fair to say the the famous American complaint that you don't know who to who to call if you want to talk to somebody about the EU's what the EU's foreign policy is. I mean, has has some validity to it. I mean, you say uh, I think it's completely right. We've seen it that it's the countries of of Central and Eastern Europe that that were leading the way and warning about this about this this threat. And you can can include in that countries like Sweden as well, who are also have you know in terms of their geographical position are are conscious of it. If I were to be a bit cynical and were to say. We're seeing these terrible pictures on our screens. People are marching on the streets. People are standing with Ukraine. But what does that count for in six months' time if uh, if Putin has overrun that country? Would uh, would I be being over cynical there? Do you actually think that what's happening here is a profound change that we won't go back? There are certainly profound changes that have happened. I mean, to see decisions being made like in Sweden and Finland. Um, towards, um, you know, sending military aid and the debate suddenly being spurred about NATO membership, um, you know, I think the change is real. Um, however, all, for, all wars, of course, come with war fatigue. You know, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what course this conflict will take. 
Um, but yeah, certainly um, we've seen in wars in the past that after a certain a certain amount of time, the uh, you know the initial the initial interest is enormous and then then it, it wanes after that. But equally, you know this uh, this conflict um, has because it threatens to cause war um, that involving the EU um, and because the threat is so immediate to people, um, it has been a different. Um, one thing um, that people have been noting is that the absolute solidarity with Ukraine and the declarations and all the flags that have been waved and everything, you know, you can still see the clear policy red lines. Um, so all the, all the Western countries have said from the beginning that they're not going to have any troops on the ground in Ukraine. And uh, now the call is all focused on this no-fly zone uh, with the idea the demand of the Ukrainians is that this would stop Russian forces from bombing them. And we have seen from Russian tactics in Syria the lengths of destruction that Russian forces are prepared to wreak on civilian populations. Uh, so that's a sort of like a terrible fear that something like that could happen. But, you know, we had it, Boris Johnson saying it yesterday, we heard it also from Washington, um, that they say what that would mean would be NATO forces entering forces of a NATO country entering into combat with you know air forces of Russia and that that would you know would mean World War three and it's it's not something that any NATO member country uh, it's not a step that any of them will take so that's one sort of red line that still exists for now another one is for example um yesterday there was a big vote in the European Parliament in favor of an enormous majority in favor in, in favor of a huge a statement, a resolution on Ukraine at condemning the Russian invasion. Um, it was really strongly worded, and some of the language on security and defence, um, supporting spent military spending, and uh, you sort of affirmative language about NATO and its role in providing the self-defence of countries and things like that. Um, this this sort of language would have been unthinkable for many of the people that voted in favour of this amendment, um, but now now it was. However, you could still see the limits in it. So, for example, there was a the demand of uh, of some Ukrainians was a, was a big political statement to say, you know, we will speed up Ukraine's membership to the EU because there's a school of thought that what Putin really fears isn't NATO at all. That's a kind of red herring. It's the it's the EU and the countries that were once um, formerly in the Soviet Union, increasingly economically aligning uh, with the EU, which cuts out his kleptocratic, oligarchic, fossil fuel-based economy. Um, so the line about it that was actually adopted in the European Parliament uh, about Ukraine's potential membership of the EU was extremely sort of couched and conservative. Uh, you know, it was uh, it did carry a huge majority in favour, but, you know, it sort of said we, we recognise the ambitions of, you know, future accession on basis of merit. Um, and, you know, in accordance with all of the rules. And that's a reference to just how very lengthy and uh, and deep and, and complicated the EU accession process is. It would take years and years and years. It requires regulatory and legal overhauls, enormous tests, many things that countries can slow down, many processes that can be stalled. And there's still, it doesn't change the fact that in Western European countries, uh, there's, there's lingering... Um, caution towards enlarging the EU any further because there's a feeling that you know it, it was for some member states there's a feel, feeling that it got too big already that some of the eastern European states have been difficult to have in the union because they block stuff and there's been uh, democratic backsliding uh, in some of them 
and uh, and there's caution towards uh, future accession. But this is all very theoretical because at, at the moment, you know, it's not like the Ukrainian government can be doing anything about accession, particularly when it's it's fighting uh, off an invasion. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly um, there there remain still red lines. But I don't think we should understate the the extent of the transformation of recent days. Yeah, and it's uh, it's actually it seems really extraordinary to me that speaking from. Bu- bombed landing on Kiev that that Ukrainian leaders are calling for accession to the EU or speed up accession to the EU. It's kind of really, really telling, I think, in itself. And uh, on a recent podcast, we talked to the Albanian writer Leia Uppi, who made the point that Albania, which is on that very slow accession track you're talking about, that actually being on the accession track is one of the things which has strengthened civil society because of the requirements uh, of the of the accession process. But um, right, I, but I, I mean, I to- Hugh, like that's what it's all about. Like you know, the the 2014 Maidan uprising was all about, um, it was an outpouring anger against the Ukrainian government that refused to sign a trade and association agreement with the EU. Um, So it was an uprising of pro-EU sentiment. That's exactly what Putin is describing as the Nazi coup. That's what he calls it, a Nazi coup. This is all about Ukraine's ambitions to align with the EU. And that's that's why I think the, the guilt is profound on the part of the EU now for not doing enough to help that up to see the price that Ukrainians are willing to pay for that for that dream and that future ambition. I suppose I wonder Naomi what is the expectation now uh, in Brussels having brought in these much stronger sanctions and also boosted military aid to uh, to to the Ukrainian forces. Um as you said earlier it's really impossible to know how the conflict is is likely to to progress on the ground over the next over the next days and weeks, but we've we've kind of got into the habit, I think, in the West of thinking of sanctions as something which are not terribly serious, because in a range of cases they haven't achieved their their objectives, and so they're seen as something lesser. But they can be incredibly damaging, and I think back to the sanctions on uh, on Iraq in the nineteen nineties and the pictures of children dying in hospitals and and all those kinds of things. They are the next best thing to war, I suppose, in in one way. But we had Bill Browder on the podcast on Monday, and I asked him what was likely to happen in Russia, and he says nothing. He says Putin's power is unchallenged. Uh, he didn't seem to see any prospect of regime change in Russia uh, of any sort whatsoever. And he says Putin does not back down. Um, what do people in Brussels think is going to happen? Their position is that the sanctions are not going to stop this invasion. That's what they've already said. Um, but the the aim is to profoundly isolate Russia in the long term and particularly to try to break the slight coalition that has been emerging in recent years of major authoritarian uh, economies, uh, Russia, India, China, um, and Iran, uh, to try and cause cracks in that unity. And you saw maybe a suggestion of that yesterday with some remarks from Beijing, in which they suggested that potentially they could be involved in some sort of peace talks. And there was also a condemnation of uh, uh, or expressive concern at civilian lo- loss of life. There's Chinese people in Ukraine, I think, as well. You know, that's the other side of this. There's many countries have citizens in Ukraine uh, who are now communicating, sending out videos of their anguish as they try and flee the country, and it's had a profound effect on the international reputation of Russia. You know, um, in all over the world. Um, in terms of the sanctions, these are sanctions like have never been 
imposed before. It's incredible to see the speed of the dissolution of Russia's modern economy with the major multinationals just pulling out, selling off, um, you know, Russia economically isolated, the major sporting organizations suddenly finding their metal and uh, and excluding Russia. It's, de- it's definitely profound. And I wouldn't say that, I mean, look, I'm not an expert on Russia. I don't know what Bill Browder said, but it's not true that there's no Russian opposition. Like something in the order of 6,000 people have been arrested in Russia for protesting against this war. There were quite enormous protests in Russian cities against it. Um, you can he- still even now hear the voices of opposition figures in Russia talking about how this isn't their choice, this is their crazy Tsar, as they call him, including Alexei Navalny, who's called for daily, daily protests uh, against it to, to try and stop this. Um, no one is invincible. I think the concern is that the President Vladimir Putin has fewer and fewer choices. Um, he stays in power or his choices are bad, right? He's looking at the International Criminal Court um, or, I don't know, some someone else kicking him out, maybe death. You know, the, the choices for him are not good. So it's, he, what would a person with his record who's already shown the willingness of to use brutality and violence that he has um, in Syria and other places, what 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 choices might he make might he make now? It's it's something that definitely concerns the EU. Um, but we've been asking the officials what do they think about these hints that the Russian government is saying by mentioning their their nuclear capabilities, and they say, but well, you know, it's a statement of fact they are a nuclear power. Um, that's also it's part of the calculations and always has been. This cannot change what we must do, you know, what we must do for our own interests and our own self-defense. Um, and uh, but I think we're into an we're into a time which is unprecedented. I don't know if anyone knows what's going to happen now. I suppose, Derek, in the you know, along with the the sort of the cultural sympathies which you described that 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 many Germans have for an idea of Russians and for Russians themselves. There's also the fact that despite everything we're discussing here, the uh, the gas keeps flowing through the pipelines um, across Central Europe and supporting keeping German homes warm and German industries function. That hasn't stopped, even though the Nord Stream two pipeline has now been has now been suspended. Um, the German Ostpolitik going back to the 1970s and right through to now has entwined the two economies to some extent, particularly when it comes to energy. And in a way, Germany is kind of hoist, hoist on its own petard because of that strategy over the years, isn't it? And it's not something it can easily extricate itself from. Yes, I mean, uh, uh, Michal Martin, the Taoiseach, was in Berlin last week and he was standing there and they both sort of spoke there. The, the shock of the uh, invasion was fresh. And uh, I asked Chancellor Schulz, I said, it's all very well. You've, you've, you've said here just now you've suspending the uh, certification process for Nord Stream 2. It was finished last uh, September. I said, but there's still Nord Stream 1. There's still the old pipes uh, going through Ukraine, Poland. I said, Germany is and will remain uh, a large wholesale customer for German gas. Uh, what are you planning to do about it? You can't do anything about it in the short term. And he says, no, that's right, but we have to expedite 
um, our transformation on uh, renewable energy. And um, they're, they're already questioning whether or not they should close down the last of their two nuclear power plants. That's what Germany's been pushing. The, the whole dependency on gas has been increasing because after Fukushima, Angela Merkel reactivated the plan to um, switch off Germany's nuclear power plants. So the last two will go does, off does this that year. Look like a, does that look like a terrible strategic decision in retrospect? Um, well, she gets she, when it when it suits her her camp. She was credited with doing it, but of course the, it was this, it was actually Olaf Scholz's party, the Social Democrats and the Greens, who originally decided to mothball the nuclear power plants, and then she got into power once she she was in power with the Liberal Free Democrats. She uh, stopped that, and then I think it was six months later Fukushima happened, and then she restarted it. So she basically performed two U turns on nuclear power. But yeah, people did say and she actually expedited it. She sped it up. So many people have said, yeah, strategically, you know, when you don't have options and one of your options is depending on Russian gas, you know, you're creating a dependability there, which is what the US was warning about all the years. And Poland was saying, how are, how are you standing by us? Where, what, where is your solidarity with us if uh, Russia wants to play politics with energy as it always has? But the Germans just denied this and they said it was a non-political project. I mean, right up until January, uh, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz who has now woken up and, and smelt the coffee? He was claiming that Nord Stream Two was a was a, a non political, purely commercial project. Um, so you know, you see just how far even he has come um, uh, from realizing what's going on. And, and many people in Poland are really furious because they're saying, you know, the the Russians they're the Germans are protesting that the Russians were lying to them. And they said, one of them quoted to me Homer Simpson's line, it takes two to lie, one to lie and one to listen. Germans wanted to be lied to, they say, because it was good for business. So uh, in terms of transformation, it's it's going to transform energy, uh, Germany's energy transition towards the green. So, you know, the irony people are saying it's um, it's Putin's attack has brought NATO and the EU closer together than ever before. Well, it might also be something that Greta Thunberg, and I don't mean to be cynical, but she's been saying what needs to happen happens so that you finally wake up and embrace uh, carbon reduction, renewables and so on. This might actually in a terrible, terrible cost, but it might actually expedite uh, what's what's been promising. Germany's already talking about liquid uh, gas terminals on its northern coast and um, prioritizing, let's say, uh, wind turbines over rare species of of beetle in, in a field that can stop any sort of renewable energy projects in Germany for years. So we're seeing a re... It's not just in defense, we're seeing a re, the cards are being reshuffled in Germany with this new government, uh, with the Greens in there. Um, so, I mean, the consequences for everything are vast, not just on defence. Um, just a, a last question to you, Naomi, and it's really it's 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 a bigger pi- picture question, but it has undoubtedly come up over the last few days, which is. I suppose, what does this mean for the European Union? There, there are elements within the European Union, particularly France, who've been pushing for years for a stronger common defence policy backed up with military muscle, I suppose, to some extent. And this presumably has has uh, caused a step change in those kinds of discussions. Um, do you envisage that we're going to see a, a significant step forward in the history of the European Union and its presence as a, as a real cohesive global player on the world stage as a result of this? All of the major steps forward by the EU have always been forged in crisis. This is what it does in crisis. When it's tested, it finds its purpose, it finds its unity. Everybody has united in the face of a common threat. Um, This has happened repeatedly over the history of the EU. 
Um, and on the debate about security and defence, um, well, the recent events essentially have just proven right those who had argued that more needed to be done to prepare, that this was the kind of reality in the world that we might face one day. And all of those who had uh, dismissed that and uh, and belittled it have been proved wrong. Um, so, yes, there's a massive surge forward in um, in advances poli- in policy terms to do that. Having said that, a lot, a lot of preparation had to be done in advance. So this 400 million, 450 million euro uh, for arms, this was done under the European Peace Facility, which is something that was actually agreed last year. So it was designed last year. That was how... Ireland had this constructive abstention that it was able to use in line with its neutrality policy ready to go because all of this had already been designed and agreed last year. Uh, So there had been all this preparation building up to it. This month was actually when the EU was supposed to have its major sort of talk, its major conference summit on defence led by France. It was going to be one of the big themes of the French presidency. It's just been superseded by events. But, you know, the debate was already there for sure. Uh, it's just that there wasn't particular public engagement on it at all. And there was ambivalence among national leaders. There was some in favour and some not. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely changed everything. I think another thing to note is that the amazing effect that this has had on national politics in various different EU countries. Almost every EU country has uh, parties that have agreed with what Putin has been saying for many years. You know, they they generally defend Russia um, they uh, they often forged links. Many of them took money, you know, from, and they 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 sort of, I suppose, cosplayed with this nationalist Christianity, um, hard right, pro Russian image. Um, I'm talking about the right wing elements now. There has been a certain amount of this stuff on the left, but it's very different. Um, and what's happened in in the last week is that all of these parties have had to throw overboard, you know, all of these previous positions and and statements about Putin and Russia. And you had, you know, there's reports that Marine Le Pen, you know, of Le Front, Le Front National in France, had called her MEPs personally to say you better vote in favour of that um, that resolution on Ukraine, you know. Um, and so in in one country after another, these uh, these parties are are throwing overboard these past links and are all sort of disavowing them. And Hungary, you know, Viktor Orban, the prime minister there, was a pal of Putin's, you know, was for years. And now it's all that's all out the window, you know. At the end of the day. Hungary is a proud, independent nation. They don't want to be a, like a puppet, like in the regime of Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus. And it's it's changed everything profoundly in national politics as well. Yeah, I saw um, Marine Le Pen had to uh, pulp millions of election pamphlets for the upcoming French presidential election because they had a prominent picture of herself and Vladimir Putin smiling and 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 shaking hands, which was uh, which was interesting to see. Derek, I do wonder, and this is the last one, the uh, the last question to you. Um, some observers have noted that one of the uh, one of the factors which might have encouraged Putin in this recent action is is the the long standing U.S. strategic pivot away from Europe in the post Cold War era and towards um, towards Asia and the Pacific and the strategic threat uh, posed by China, which opened up an opportunity supposedly for um, for for Putin's Russia, and in that in that I suppose vacuum left by that, there's always been the question of will the EU 
cohere and step up and and assert itself. And it really can't do that kind of without Germany. Germany needs to be at the heart of it as the largest economy, the biggest country. It needs to lead, perhaps, in a way that it has been uncomfortable about doing up to now. This is the extraordinary thing. Um, Naomi mentioned the EU has always been transformed in times of crisis. Um, Germany too. It's, it's ironically, it's always been social democrat leaders who in crises have had to step up. Helmut Schmidt, uh, at huge per- political and personal cost in Germany was in favor of stationing, uh, mid-range NATO nuclear missiles on German territory. The German voters hated him for it, but, um, many people say he was right. And, and it was Gerhard Schröder who's now, um, yeah, fallen into disrepute. As a, as a Putin uh, friend and lobbyist, but he was the one who brought Germany into its first post-war uh, foreign engagement at the war with Yugoslavia over Kosovo. And, and now we see once again, it's a social democrat leader uh, trying to say, right, it's, it's, it's the most unlikely party to have to do it because the social democrats traditionally, emotionally would actually have more understanding for Russia and Russian needs, perhaps a little too much understanding, but he is the one who's going to have to do it. So it's almost like fate has dealt him the hand uh, to do this. So it is remarkable and whether Germany will be able to stand up for it. Germany has always been wary of calls for it to lead because it says it really can't win. You know, one group in Europe wants it to lead. Remember in the Euro crisis, as soon as one group says Germany must do something, but as soon as Germany does something, another group in Europe would say, oh, here's Germany trying to take over again. But I think um, the words of a former Polish um, foreign minister years ago, uh, um, Radoslaw Sikorski, he said, you know, sometimes I actually fear uh, Germany not doing something rather than Germany doing something in Europe. So I think we've reached that stage now where people are far more afraid of what's capable of uh, what's capable of coming out of Moscow than what's capable of coming out of Berlin. So yeah, it's I think it's the moment where um, you know after thirty years of sort of getting to grips with its new position in Europe, uh, Germany is going to have to step up whether it likes it or not, um, whether its people and its voters are prepared to accept it's time to grow up. Um, that's another question, but perhaps that's a battle for Olaf Scholz for another day. Derek and Naomi, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. Uh, we're going to be back very soon. Remember, you can email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.